Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross with a big show for you today. Week one is over in Paris and what a Sunday it was with two fascinating matches that I can't wait to get into. The number five seed is out, Alexander Zverev at the hands of the 19-year-old Italian phenom Yannick Sinner. A result that I think everyone, or a match that everyone had their eyes on, possible upset, and Sinner showed out, and there's plenty to discuss about that match. Not only what took place on the court, but also the things that were said after the match, and I will get into that in a moment. It'll actually lead the show. Uh, the second match I want to talk about is a was was so such a pleasure to watch, which was Dominic Team. And another young, uh, another young player, 20-year-old Frenchman, outside the top 200, but not for long, Hugo Gaston. A five-setter w- uh, in which Dominic did come through, but uh, I do want to talk about Hugo Gaston. Why, why did he give team so much trouble? What does team need to improve if he wants to go all the way at this tournament? And uh, how did he get through the match? But also, you know, I I do think that Gaston is just worth some attention because he's doing some really interesting, or he did some really interesting things out there. And I'm really excited to talk about those things. Then I will end the show um, by talking about Djokovic and Nadal, who have made things look very, very simple and very straightforward. And I just want to talk about that really quite specifically. So stick around for that. And uh, remember to follow me at Gil Gross on Twitter for coverage throughout the tournament. And Monday Match Analysis is available on all podcast platforms. Let us begin with Alexander Zverev. And I it would be completely disingenuous if I just started talking about this match while ignoring the fact that the match should have never happened. Ignoring the fact that the fact that Alexander Zverev took the court when he did, in the state that he did, was an epic failure by multiple parties. So um, before I get into that, I just I, I always want to be fair and I want to be balanced. So there was something that I didn't get to say on YouTube that I did I did say on Twitter, but I didn't get to say it on YouTube. I want to throw it out there right now, which is that Alexander Zverev, in my opinion, had the most likable two weeks of his entire career earlier this month at the U.S. Open. Well, now it's October. I should say, you know, September uh, at the U.S. Open. Two weeks ago, Alexander Zverev won a lot of fans over, in my opinion. And I wanted to kind of test that hypothesis. I tweeted this. I said, I would bet Zverev made a lot of new fans last week. He's kind of the popular kid at school, talented, good-looking, cocky, not the most relatable, but the vulnerability he showed in New York, Um, both on the court, you know, fighting as hard as he could through through a lot of the challenges that he was facing on the court and, you know, continuing to just win ugly and charge ahead and and stay, you know, somewhat positive. And then 
after the match, just showing how much it means to him, how much he cared, how gutted he was by the fact that he came so close and failed to get it done. And then on top of that, how much emotion he showed about his parents and uh, the fact that they weren't there and their COVID-19 diagnosis. All of these things, it was a different side of Alexander Zverev. It was a more human side, a more vulnerable side. And I think it resonated with a lot of people. And the reason I put a question mark at the end of that tweet is I wanted to know if if people were in line with that and if and if that was in fact the case. And more people than not agreed with me. Man, Zverev had a had a great PR week, and I know it wasn't about PR uh, at the U.S. Open. I know he was just being himself, but that's just how it worked out. Well, this is now uh, a misstep, not only by him, and and we'll get into we'll get into that. It's not just on him, but let me just take you through the events here. Zverev, after the match, uh, spoke to media and said, "Quote: I'm completely sick." I can't really breathe, as you can hear by my voice. I had a fever as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm not in the best physical state, I would say. I think that had a bit of an effect on the match today. Whoa. Whoa, you hear that during a global pandemic, and, and now, now you start to ask some questions. Okay, well, uh, did you test negative recently? Because that that would obviously be very comforting. So Ben Rothenberg asked that question, and... Sasha Zverev doesn't like Ben Rothenberg, so refused to answer the question. And then no one in English followed up. Someone should have just asked the same question, honestly. No one did that. They asked him in German, and you got a somewhat response. But then the FFT comes out, and they said Zverev's last test was Tuesday, five days ago. That's in line with their protocol. It's not really a lot of testing, um, relatively, but okay. It was five days ago. Whoa. Whoa. That's a long time ago. So now we have a player who has symptoms and who hasn't been tested and he took the court. What is this? That that's not that's not how the world operates these days. I don't care what you do. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a CEO. I don't care if you are a plumber. When you don't feel well, you don't show up to work, right? That's isn't that the policy here? Okay. Of course, that's the policy. In a player FAQ document distributed to all the players by the tournament, the tournament asked, um, one of the FAQs was, should I withdraw from the tournament if I don't feel well? And the answer is actually no. The first thing you're supposed to do if you don't feel good is notify the tournament's medical staff. Then report to the tournament infirmary and get a test. Then the third step uh, is to self-isolate until you get the results of that test back. Perfectly reasonable. And man, I would love to believe that if Alexander Zverev went to the officials and followed that protocol, then they would have postponed his match until they got the result of the test back. And if, if the test was negative and Zverev wanted to play, I think he would have been able to play. Instead, he didn't tell anyone, according to the FFT. They were not notified. So not only did Zverev ignore common sense, and just to be clear, here is common sense. If, if you don't feel well, you should not come to work in 2020. That's how this works right now. Not only did he violate common sense, he broke protocol. 
If you're sick, if you're sick, you stay home. And Alexander Zverev should know this. He competed in the Adria Tour. He was there. He was not one of the players who uh, contracted the virus. Uh, but then uh, he committed to quarantining for a 14-day period due to the fact that he had close contact with Djokovic, Dimitrov, Chorich, the folks who did test positive. He was then videotaped well before the 14 days were over, partying in Monte Carlo, no mask. He took a lot of heat for that. That was deserved. So you'd think he would know. Plus his parents tested positive. You th you'd think Sasha Zverev would understand that to play with a fever and difficulty breathing is not it. It's not what you do. It's a big miss. Come on. What about the French Open? Yeah, I'm not going to let them off the hook. How are there no temperature checks? How are you, how is a credentialed person allowed to enter the grounds? How is anyone allowed to enter the grounds without a temperature check? This is the most rudimentary, basic, simple, common sense COVID-19 protocol I can possibly think of. I coached some junior tennis at my local club this summer. I couldn't do it without a temperature check. And that was my local club. That wasn't Roland Garros. How is there not a temperature check? This is the most basic thing I can possibly think of. I mean, come on. Did they make them go through a metal detector? That's right. That's just protocol. You don't just walk onto the grounds. You go through security. How are you not putting a, a temperature gun to everyone's head? God, is that simple. Boy, is that simple. And yes... The U.S. Open had that policy in place. So a really unacceptable situation here from the tournament's perspective, from Sasha Zverev's perspective. And now we hope that he doesn't test positive and that he's just sick, which is uh, entirely possible. And we hope it's the case. That way other people weren't put in jeopardy in the... French Open bubble, which is not the not the most uh, sealed of as far as bubbles go, but it is still nonetheless a bubble. And I'm just hoping that that Sasha doesn't have it for his sake and for everyone else's sake. Now, I want to get into the match. I was planning on featuring this match on the show before any of this COVID stuff came out. In fact, Yannick Sinner said he didn't even notice Zverev's physical struggles during the match, and neither did I. So I do want you to take note of the title of this video. 
Sinner arrives. That's that's the first that's the first two words. I believe that's the headline. And it is an absolute shame and a travesty that this COVID or excuse me, this sickness situation has taken so much away from Sinner's shine, which he he so thoroughly deserves. Not only uh, really just, you know, based on, on the way the match was played, if nothing else. So I do want to get into um, into Yannick Sinner and how, you know, how impressed I am. Now, the first thing I want to say is big picture with Sinner. Trajectory, trajectory, trajectory. I always try to hammer this home because I so thoroughly believe it. When you want to try to, when you want to try to project future accomplishments, focus on rate of improvement. And if you're looking at a scary and con- uh, a continuous rate of improvement at a really high rate. These are the players you need to really look out for. And man, does does Yannick Sinner just embody that. Uh, he is getting so much better so quickly. What really impressed me in this match is his pure ball striking, his just overwhelming power off both wings, and his ability to attack balls from the middle of the court. When he sets his base, he is absolutely deadly. He finds angles on the backhand and the forehand. He hits with pace. He hits through these. Uh, he can hit through these uh, conditions against a great mover in Zverev. It is so so difficult to do. And look, Alexander Zverev made. There's a lot of things he did not do well in this match, and I'm going to get into those things. However. He did not make it easy for Yannick Sinner. He actually put a very difficult task in front of Yannick Sinner, which is hit through me. Hit through me, young blood. I dare you. And that's no easy task. In windy conditions, in slow conditions, with as good a mover as Zverev is, with the positioning the wildly defensive positioning that Zverev was assuming, all these things considered, it is not easy. It was not easy for Yannick Sinner to do what he did. Uh, And a lot of players would have failed to do what Yannick Sinner did. Case in point, uh, look how many amazing shots Alexander Zverev is going to require of Yannick Sinner at love two in the fourth set, Sinner's up a break, but Zverev has a chance to break back. Here's a huge inside-out forehand. Zverev defends. Sinner now pulls it inside in, places it perfectly, rips it. Zverev is there and, and now hits kind of a squash slice defensive lob. And it's going to be pretty deep, but Zver, uh, but Sinner's going to get to lean into this one. And smoke it inside out again. Well placed. Zverev now in the other corner. Defends again. And then Sinner's going to take a couple steps to his left and go inside in again. And he hits it beautifully. And this time Zverev gets a racket on it. Which just goes to show you how difficult it is to actually get the ball 
past the German in this scenario, but uh, Zverev can't get this back in the court. These were the kind of rallies you were seeing. Plain and simple with, with Yannick Sinner, and I tweeted this as well. If you do not put him on the run, you are as good as dead. You are going to have a terrible day in the office if you don't put Yannick Sinner on the run. If you allow him to set his base and, and hit from the middle of the court, and if you give him time to do so, oh my goodness. He is going to clobber the ball. He's not going to miss very often. He's going to move the ball around the court. He's going to hit every shot in the book. Um, and you can't hide from his forehand because his backhand is just as good. And his power is special. It is just, you just don't see this come along, okay? I mean, it, it might be, he might go down as the biggest hit, hitter from both wings off the ground that we've ever seen. I really think he has a chance to, to do that. So that's the main thing I saw from Sinner. Scary power, elite ball striking. Now let's get to Zverev. I want to talk about court positioning. It's important. It's a big part of the modern game. Let's talk about it. Zverev, way too passive in this match. It was like there was an electric fence on the baseline and Zverev was wearing a shock collar and he didn't want to step inside the baseline. He was stuck. That was the problem. Um, and it's a sharp contrast to what we saw at the U.S. Open, where Zverev showcased an unbelievable penchant for defense, which he always has, but also a, a you know a, a quick and consistent willingness to step inside the court. He showcased a great transition game in the first two sets against Dominic Team in that final. Um, not only was he hitting really good approach shot forehands, but he was hitting tremendous volleys, especially the drop volley, especially the half volley. And that kind of thing was nowhere to be seen here. In fact, there weren't really any winners coming off of Zverev's racket either. I don't know what it ended up being. I know, I know it was 15 winners through three sets of play for Zverev. I don't know what the final number was. He wasn't hitting any winners because he never was going to give himself a chance to hit winners because it was defense, 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 and more defense from Zverev. And I want to be very clear about something because some people see Zverev play far back and they immediately say, what is he doing? He's six foot six. Why would he play far back? And I want to, I want to nip that because that's not right. Zverev playing defensively isn't automatically bad. As a changeup tactic, it can be extremely effective. As a matchup-specific tactic, it can be extremely effective. Against some players, it's going to work. He has great movement. He has tremendous re retrieval skills. He has great counter-attacking skills. He has good endurance. Zverev can play that game. He can play it well. And there's a time and a place for that game. So to chastise or admonish, admonish Zverev 
anytime he plays passively, just because he's big, is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it's it's just that that's hogwash. That should never happen, right? Playing defensively is not bad for Zverev. But against Yannick Sinner, and when you're using it as your plan A and your plan B and your plan C, it's a big problem. What Zverev was doing by playing the way he played was failing to exploit Yannick Sinner's biggest weakness. The best thing that the, or excuse me, the, the, the worst thing that the Italian really has to overcome is a little bit of a lack of lateral quickness around the court. You must move Sinner side to side. You must put him on the run. You must put him on the corners. You have to make him change direction. You have to make him move. His quickness is not elite yet. So you need to put pressure on that. You need to get to his legs. If you let him, if you give him time, if you let him hit from the middle of the court, he is going to destroy you. So, of course, Zverev with his deep and defensive court position, not only that, but the way he was hitting the ball, central, middle of the court, risk averse. You're simply not making Yannick Sinner move enough. You have to make him defend. That is his weakness. You have to get to that weakness somehow. You must find a way. So he, Sinner had all day. Because remember, the, the further back Zverev is, the more time he is affording Sinner on the other side of the court. He's given him time. Now, if you're playing defense, time is good. Time is great. You want to cut, and, and we're about to get to that with Gaston. You want to recover to the middle. Um, you want, you know, yeah, you want time to, to recover your court position. That's awesome. That's, that's important. But if you're going to make any dent offensively, now you got to take away time from your opponent. Especially on a, on a slow court, it's a must. Really any court. Any court. So I think the point I'm trying to make is this. Court positioning is a weapon. It can be used both offensively and defensively. It's a weapon. Nadal and team have mastered court position because they toggle between offense and defense, and they use their court position as a weapon. They use a court, their court position as an aid in accomplishing whatever their intention is, any given shot. And they read their outgoing ball and adjust their court position based on their outgoing ball. It's an anticipation game. So let me show you Zverev not doing that. Um, here is Zverev um, hitting a defensive running forehand. And it's an excellent one. A really great defensive running forehand. Puts it right on the baseline. Right in the corner. And actually has center on the run. Alright, he, he has a strong outgoing ball. This is where Zverev wants to read his outgoing ball. 
understand a short ball is coming on the next and aggressively try to recover your his court position. This is his chance right now. But what does he do? Okay, he kind of takes a step in, but he still kind of waits for this ball. And the way he hits it is he just rolls it down the line. Short, inside the service box, no aggression whatsoever. And then he kind of just, you know, he sidesteps and he doesn't do anything with that ball. But he's going to get another chance because I think Sinner was still kind of recovering here. And now Sinner's going to hit a neutral ball that lands too short. Look at that. That center neutral backhand lands inside the service box to Zverev's backhand. And we know how lethal and potent Zverev's backhand is. Okay, step in, rip it, hit a winner. Not hit a winner. I'm not, I don't mean, I don't want to be that vain, but basically build the point. Let's go, take the, take control. But Zverev's too far back. He can't attack the short ball. Instead, he waits for the ball. It's so low, he actually slices this ball. This should have been offense. Instead, he hits neutral, passive, and center makes him pay. Inside out forehand, and this is an error by Zverev. So, what was the error there? The error there is Zverev hit a great shot and did nothing about it with his court position. Just didn't react. When you hit a great shot, come on, go in. Recognize that. That is so important. Watch Nadal. Watch team. Do they use deep? Do they uh, defend with deep court position? When they return serve, do they return serve from the back fence? Yes. But as soon as they hit a heavy ball, a strong outgoing ball, they immediately read that and adjust their court position. And by the way, the same thing goes for if you hit a weak outgoing ball, and now you need to anticipate that you're about to play some defense, you should move back. That's what Rafa Nadal, better than anyone else, for example, will do. You must use your court position as a weapon, as an aid in both offense and defense. So Zverev played this match way too passively. He was he was stuck behind the baseline and far behind it at that. And he, um, in doing that, he was playing really directly into Sinner's hands. So in all four sets, I thought all four sets were played the same way. Sinner dictating, Sinner clubbing the ball. And um, in the third set, Zverev got some errors off the racket of Sinner. But in the other three sets, he didn't. And that was it. Here's my my closing statement on this match. The way Zverev played it, he was entirely reliant on Yannick Sinner errors. And he didn't get them. The Italian was up to the task. I continue to be so impressed by him. Let us move on to the next match. Hugo Gaston versus Dominic Team, A five-set win for the U.S. Open champion. Where shall I begin here? Um, so a lot of people look at this match and the first thing you want to talk about is the Hugo Gaston drop shots. And I'll get there. But that's not really what I've so thoroughly enjoyed about watching Gaston 
um, over over the course of this week. It's not not exactly it. Um, more than anything, I've enjoyed watching him defend. He has such an unbelievable feel and understanding for defense. My mind is blown. Now, of course, a big part of that is just how quick you are. And Gaston is just, he's flat out lightning. He's like, he's, he's like Demonor a little bit with his speed, but he doesn't defend anything like Alex Demonor. I won't get into that in too much depth, but here's what I'll say. And here's why it was so hard for Dominic team to come by uh, easy offense. And here's why Gaston demanded so much of Dominic team. It's because of how Gaston was defending. There's a couple of kind of rules that he lives by. The first thing is he he says, I will never be out of position. Because if I'm pulled outside the alleys, I'm throwing up. I'm either, I'm either floating a slice um, or I'm throwing up a moon ball. I'm never going to be out of position. You won't find me out of position. I'm going to hit the ball in a way that is going to give me enough time to essentially recover to the middle. So he was using, he put so much height on the ball and he's so comfortable doing that. Um, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch. Not only uh, will, is he willing to do it to recover the middle, but also to recover forward. You can see here, he's on the back fence on his backhand and he's just like, okay, you know, I'm just going to, from here, my best play is to throw up a moon ball. Let me just put team, let me just try to push team back here. Because if, if Dominic lets this bounce, the only way, the only thing that you can really do about this is maybe hit a swinging volley. It's kind of a, it's a difficult and daring shot and team hit it at times, but it's just kind of high risk. Anyway, so Gaston is like, you know, I got to move up a little. So let me just hit a moon ball, push team back. And look, now I've flipped the court position. See how team is kind of on the baseline here and Gaston is pushed all the way back. Let me just hit, let me hit, hit it with, you know, 15, 20 feet of net clearance, heavy topspin backhand. And look, now team is hitting a forehand from the back fence. He can't hurt me from here. Backhand defense from Gaston here. Again, look at the net clearance, 10, 15 feet because he's way off the court and he wants to get back to the middle. So now he's back. And it pushes team back because of the loop. And now team's in a position against a really fast guy in heavy conditions, a ball that doesn't have a lot of pace, team not even inside the baseline. Good luck generating offense off of that. More likely to generate an error going for too much. And that's what happened there. The idea is this. Gaston is in the middle of the court and team has no pace to work with. Those are the magical and secret ingredients to, Gaston, to Gaston's defense. When he's playing defense, whether it's continental grip and he's kind of uh, chopping away at the ball, but again, using height oftentimes, or if it's with traditional forehand or backhand grip, regardless, he is not hitting with a lot of pace at all. He's hitting with tons of net clearance and loop. Um, and... He's giving himself time to recover. In these conditions and with, Gaston, with Gaston's speed, 
even Dominic Team cannot hit it through the Frenchman, cannot hit through the court, cannot get it by him, or break through his defenses when those factors are in play. Gaston is in position. The ball does not have any pace on it. And, and um, well, I guess the other conditions is, you know, inherently Gaston's speed. Even Dominic Team and his big forehand. In those two conditions, which Gaston continued to create, he couldn't do anything about it. So that was so brilliant about Gaston's defense. And I just, I loved the way he was defending. Now let's talk about the Frenchman's offense. It was all about adding and taking away depth. Because he's not really, he's not strong enough to slug it out with team. He can't go, he can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe from the baseline in a traditional sense with Dominic Team. He'll get blown out of the water. He'll get smoked. So it was all about uh pushing team back, adding pace. So especially with the forehand, um, it was heavy, heavy topspin and lots of height on the ball to try to push team back. And then it was drop shot. Now on serve, Gaston had tons of success drop shotting the first ball. And it's the same principle as first strike tennis. It is what is my, what is going to be the best ball that I am likely to get to attack in the rally? Likely the first ball off the return. And given teams return position and how deep he returns from, what is my best course of action on that ball? The drop shot. So serve drop shot. Let me do, let me hit my serve plus drop shot. And not just as a once in a while change up tactic. I'm just going to keep going to that. I'm just going to go to it over and over and over and over again. And don't get me wrong. The most impressive thing about Gaston's drop shot was not the fact that he decided to use it, but the execution. He had such incredible, he showed off such incredible hands on such a consistent basis. Then oftentimes when team got up to it, lob. So it was all about depth here. And Gaston was able to take advantage of team's, court, uh, of team's deep court position by using the drop shot, especially um, off the first ball when Gaston was on serve. But even in baseline rallies, it was all about push team back, find a short ball, drop shot. That was the path there for Gaston. So smart, so crafty. Now, um, Dominic is going to need to find a better plan. He needs to think about what he does when he gets up to drop shots because he, he just needs to, he, he needed to be better with those balls. He wasn't very good. Um, the stats at the end of the match, 55 drop shot attempts, attempts from Hugo Gaston, 40 points won. Absolutely incredible. Unbelievable. Um, and again, I just want to stress that while the drop shots were incredible and they were great, it was the defense that really gave Gaston the edge in the third and the fourth sets. Three forehand unforced errors from team at 5-6 in the third. An amazing moon ball defensive return by Gaston on set point when he was pulled all the way off the court um, to win the third set. It's a great example. If you go back and you watch highlights, the set point, third set, Gaston's moon ball on the return uh, is a great example of 
I'm not going to give you any pace and I'm going to recover to the middle at all costs. Um, and then the other thing is, oh, oh, sorry. I was going to, I was going to make one more point. The fourth set, the break at one, two, four errors by team three on the forehand. So if you look at the games that, that Gaston broke team, it wasn't like he was just hitting drop shot winners. It was, it was more so the defense and team making errors and misfiring because he, uh, Gaston was making it so difficult on team. Uh, the return was a big problem for team. So the two biggest technical issues, team needs a better plan when he gets up to drop shots. And when I say he needs to, it's because he won the match and Nadal's going to do the same thing to him. <laughs> That's what I mean. And so is Schwartzman, by the way. Schwartzman's a pretty good drop shotter. So team needs to think about that. He needs to, you know, him and him and Nico Masu need to really uh, have a very clear plan in mind that this is how we're going to handle drop shots. Um, and this is going to be the thought process. And when you're in this position, this is what you're going to do with it. When you're in that position, you're going to do this. Uh, they, they need to sort that out. The return was very uninspiring, incredibly unimpressing, unimpressive from team. Um, Gaston was having... Uh, he, he missed way too many returns, did, did Dominic. And the fact that Gaston was getting the chance to drop shot off of so many first balls also kind of speaks to just the quality of of Dominic's return. So that left a lot to be desired, especially because of the quality of Gaston's serve. And it'll be very interesting against Schwartzman to see what team can do on return. Because if team does not punish, or no, if team is unable to find consistent offense off of the Schwartzman uh, return, or excuse me, off of his own return on Schwartzman's serve, it's going to be trouble. It's going to be big, big trouble. Now, I think some of this was probably fatigue from Dominic. And and now I'll get to the point where I talk about why team won the match because this whole thing has been talking about the amazing things that Gaston has done. Um, but for the most part, um, what Dominic did was raise his level like, like a great player and just really showing what great players do is when they really need it at the end, they, they can find it. They just reach the level that they need. And I'm not saying he had to win ugly or that he didn't reach a great level. He actually reached a great level because Gaston never fully dropped off. One thing to note is the efficiency on the Gaston drop shot took a dip um, after after uh, three all. Starting three all in the fifth set, it just wasn't quite as efficient. It became more of a 50-50 proposition instead of a winning proposition for Gaston. So that uh, certainly was part of it. Uh, the last three drop shots he hit at 3-4 in the fifth set were bad. Now, team botched one of them, and, and Gaston ended up winning one of the points. Uh, but what really happened in the 3-4 game is team unleashed some of the best forehands of the entire match. And starting really from 3-all in the fifth set, team just didn't miss a forehand. Uh, it, it stopped misfiring. And at the end of the day, there's there's nothing Gaston can do there if if that's going to be the case. Team just tightened up, in, and I mean that in a good way. Um, he just, the, the balls just stopped spraying on him. And no longer could Gaston get an error out of Dominic at the end of the fifth set. And Full credit to team because again, this is an incredible, this is an incredibly difficult thing that Dominic team is trying to do. 
if team were to, per se, hypothetically, win the French Open, it'd probably go down as one of the greatest accomplishments in the history of men's tennis. Probably. I mean, who has ever been asked to, you know, in a global pandemic, win the, win the U.S. Open after barely playing any tennis and then two weeks later winning the French? And um, I guess it's comparable to some of the amazing players who have won the French Open and then Wimbledon. I think Nadal's done that twice back to back. You know, it's, it's incredibly difficult to do. Bjorn Borg was the king of that. Um, it's incredibly difficult to do. Not a lot of people have done it because it's extremely hard to do. And for team to do it in these circumstances with all of the wacko things that are happening, it would be unbelievably difficult. And just the fact that it was his first is, is part of it. The fact that the U S open was team's first major title and the added emotion and the added physicality that that probably brought. So that's my aside. That's just my side to say I'm very impressed with how team raised his level at the end of this one against Gaston. He just didn't miss a forehand, and Gaston uh, made some unforced errors actually going for the drop shot instead of just being that automatically efficient weapon that he had. So that's what did it. Team is moving on. Uh, I I do favor Schwartzman um, in the next match. Let us end with Djokovic and Rafa. I will keep this short. What I mostly want to emphasize here is that Djokovic and Nadal haven't shown anything yet. Um, They have not been pushed. They have not been challenged. And therefore, there is no... You cannot make any kind of proclamation based on what we've seen about what would happen if they played each other. It's completely impossible. Why? Because against the opponents that Djokovic and Nadal have faced, they have not had to do difficult things on the tennis court. They have not been pushed. They have not played players who play outstanding defense. They have not played players who serve big. They have not played players who will punish them for dropping the ball short. They have not played players with high shot tolerance. All of these things, and I'm just listing random things that are difficult to deal with on a tennis court. All of these things you're not really going to get at the elite level like Djokovic and and, and Nadal are uh, when you're playing players outside the top 60. And so far for Djokovic and Nadal, it's been nothing but outside the top 60. Nadal hasn't lost more than 10 games in a match. That that happened to be his first match against Gerasimov. Um, The highest-ranked player Nadal has faced is number 74, Travaglia. Djokovic hasn't lost more than five games in a match. And the highest-ranked player he's faced is 66th ranked uh, Rob Barankis. So there's nothing to take away here. And and um, when Djokovic plays Hachinov and when Nadal plays Sinner, that's where we're really going to learn things because so far we haven't, we haven't learned anything about where Djokovic's game at, is at or where Nadal's game is at other than things are all fine and well and that they're playing good tennis. Um, And I mean no disrespect to those players. It's just all I'm saying is you cannot draw any conclusions from from the matches that we've seen. So I would caution against that. That is our show. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. 
Remember to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I also appreciate it if you like the video. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next time.